0: Please turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is obviously a very well-known psalm, one that I'm sure that uh, we are familiar with, though we may not know exactly, we're more probably more familiar with the contents of anything if we're not exactly familiar that it comes from Psalm 110, and we'll see what I'm talking about in a moment. This is one of the, the most often quoted Psalms, often quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. I mean, there are direct quotations from this Psalm, there are allusions to this Psalm, All through the New Testament. And if you can jot these down, that's fine. If not, you can get them from me uh, later. But some direct quotes are Matthew chapter 22, verses 43 to 45. And that is also quoted in Luke. It's quoted in Mark. Acts chapter 2, verses 33 to 36. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. Some allusions to this is Matthew 26... Mark 16, Acts 5, Acts 7, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians chapter 1, Colossians 3, Hebrews chapter 1, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 12, 1 Peter chapter 3, and Revelation chapter 3. Any place, and there's more, but any place in which we, we find, those, or, or find that, that, uh, that reality of Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father, sitting at the right hand of God, the author of Scripture is quoting or alluding to Psalm 110. Jesus is going to directly quote this psalm in reference to himself in the Gospels. Uh, That was that Matthew chapter 22 uh, passage. Not only because of the very first verse here, but also because of verse 4 it is often quoted. I mean, this is also going to be the very passage that Peter, when he stands on the day of Pentecost and he begins preaching... This is his passage. This is exactly what he understood. Uh, this passage to refer to. In reference to Christ himself. This is a passage that brings much comfort to all the people of God in every age. It is a passage that really gives us some marching orders. It is a passage that gives us the reality of the, the, the lordship of Christ. And his, his ruling over the nations. The conquering king. Him conquering In the end, uh, this this psalm gives us great hope uh, as it did for all the people of God. No, no wonder it is often quoted as much as it is within the New Testament. We're going to go over this passage tonight. We're going to look at Psalm 110 in its entirety so that we can get a better grasp of what this is teaching. Uh, to allow it to saturate our own hearts, to give us some boldness and give us some encouragement and strength to carry out what God has commanded us to do. So we are going to give our attention here to this psalm, and I pray for all of us that it will be a great encouragement and comfort and source of strength to our hearts as we see Christ enthroned in the heavens ruling and reigning. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us hear the word of the living God. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore... He will lift up his head. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we again come into your presence and we give you praise and thanksgiving from our hearts for all that you are and all that you do. Father, let this psalm be a great source of joy for us. Let us rejoice in the contents of this psalm. And let it bring great comfort to our hearts and ease our minds. Even in the midst of the things that go on in our individual lives or in the country and world as a, as a whole. Father, let us see the conquering king, our Lord Jesus Christ, throughout this psalm. And may he be exalted. And, and may the spirit of God lift up our countenance unto you and give us peace. We love you. We give you all the praise and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> really and truly, this psalm <clears throat> really has two parts to it. Two oracles, two utterances, and it is primarily verses 1 and 4, as these are the most often quoted uh, within the New Testament. The declarations that are made in these these two parts here really form the whole of this, this psalm. This is a psalm of David. We don't know exactly when this was penned. Some think this is when David had conquered the Ammonites. Others think that this is uh, when David had conquered uh, Jerusalem, and he pens this psalm. There were a number of different interpretations of this psalm, but some of those failed to really capture the true nature of this psalm. As a royal psalm, as a as a messianic psalm, that the contents here are pointing to the Lord Jesus. This is how Christ understood this himself in reference to Him. This is how the other writers of Scripture in the New Testament understood this psalm to be in reference to Christ. Now, this could very well be that David had a great victory either over the Ammonites or he had a great victory over uh, the city of Jerusalem when he conquered it and. Moved by the Holy Spirit of God, he not only is celebrating and rejoicing before the Lord, but in, in reference to that celebration and joy by the Spirit of God, he pins this psalm in reference to the conquering king, his Lord, conquering all his enemies in the, in, in the days to come. The Lord says in verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, now, David is the one pinning the psalm. He is the one who is, is referencing both. This is the very psalm that Jesus uses in order to stump the Pharisees. We'll look at that in a moment. But here's how this psalm begins. He says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, there are two being spoken of here. You'll notice that the word Lord, the first one we come to is in all capitals that's a sacred name of god yahweh the second says to my lord capital l and then the rest are in lower case that is the highest exalted name of god in the old testament which is adonai the sovereign the master so yahweh says to my master to my sovereign this is david you know we were just coming out of john 17 we are so privileged to see this, this really long prayer, this high priestly prayer by Christ. And we talked about that communion between the two and the fellowship. But David also has the privilege of, of kind of peering into this relationship as well by the Holy Spirit of God. Not to the extent that we read of in John 17, for that's the most exhaustive prayer that we see of Christ to the Father of the inner Trinitarian relationship. But this here is one of the others. David is privileged to hear this. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now this is used in reference to the Lord Jesus and His ascension and sitting at the right hand of the Father. Again, any time we're reading in the New Testament of Christ ascending into heaven, sitting at the right hand of power, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, etc., etc., it is alluding to this psalm. Upon Christ's completed work, He ascends into heaven and He takes His rightful seat at the right hand of the Father. That place of honor. That place that belongs to Christ alone. And this is so interesting, that what is being said here, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I will confess this to you, if there was one passage that even remotely made me lean more post-millennial, it would be this one. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Look at what he says. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying rule in the midst of your enemies. This is not Christ in heaven waiting for the consummation of all things to destroy his enemies. This is Christ in heaven along with the father ruling and reigning in the midst of his enemies. That that stretching forth of the, that strong scepter. The rod of his strength is symbolizing that power and that authority that Christ is is exercising even in the midst of his enemies. So this isn't referring to a time in the end in which we have the new heavens and the new earth and Christ is ruling and reigning. This is a time in which Christ's enemies are still existing. They're still present. And he is ruling and reigning in the midst of them. He is exerting his authority, his will, his power Everything in the midst of his enemies. It <clears throat> Actually, this psalm really ties in much to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, which is another messianic psalm. He says in Psalm 2, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. That's Adonai scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are really connecting with one another as far as the content of what it is teaching us. That Christ is ruling and reigning in the midst of his, of his enemies, he laughs at their rebellion, he scoffs at, he scoffs at them, he is he is not deterred one bit from anything that they devise against him, for his strong scepter has gone forth, and he rules and he reigns in the midst of it all. Just as the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar confessed, Your dominion is everlasting. No one can thwart your will or say to you, what have you done? That's a pagan king who acknowledges the most high God. Christ is and the reality of this is is a present reality for us. It is a present reality for all the people of God that Christ is in heaven. He sits at the right hand of the father. He is seated on his cosmic throne and he is ruling and reigning even in the midst of his people. In the midst of his enemies. He is accomplishing everything. So what we're looking at then. Is regardless of the things that are going on today. And we think. The kingdom of darkness. It's just gaining a foothold. Or or whatever other things that we come up with. Christ is ruling and reigning. And everything is going according to plan. I was talking to someone. It's been a month or two back and was talking about um, how some things were coming into our town and it just seemed like just the, the, the forces of darkness were gaining a foothold and how we just need to pray and how we need to pray, you know, that believers will stand up and all this sort of thing and, and not allow this darkness to come in and, and Satan getting this foothold and you think the whole time as you're hearing this, you're thinking, and they they're genuine i don't i don't believe they're unbelievers but at the same time you think you have a very small view of god you have a very small view of his sovereign power in the midst of his own creation we often do that and a lot of times it's because we're looking we're looking at the temporal. We're looking, looking at the earthly. We're not looking at the heavenly and the eternal one. And so sometimes our minds can get into that. Look at everything that's going on. How terrible. Some things are terrible, of, of course. It's not to say that everything is enjoyable at all. However, the reality of it all is he is accomplishing Everything that he intends to accomplish. And no one can say to him. What have you done? Or. Thwart his hand. There are none. For he is Adonai. He is the master. He is the sovereign. Can any creation of his. Thwart. Anything that he intends to do. No. No. We would have to have the same power as He in order to do that. There are, there are none that compares to Him. And so, this ruling and reigning and making His enemies a footstool for His feet, this continual work of the Lord Jesus in the world is carrying on, and it has since He ascended into heaven And it will continue until the consummation of all things. This is ruling and reigning in the midst of his enemies. So the enemies are present. This is the present age in which this is a reality. This is a reality that the people of God can take great comfort in. But. Not only are we looking at the fact of him ruling and reigning in the midst of his enemies. But we see how that. Power and authority is also being proclaimed and declared within the world. He says, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power and holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. And looking at that, I said, like What in the world does that mean? Your people will volunteer freely. They will volunteer freely and joyfully in order to be used by the Lord in order to accomplish something that he intends to accomplish. Keel and Dillich, two Old Testament scholars, they say the host of young men is likened to the dew, both on account of its vigorousness and its multitude, which are like the freshness of the mountain dew and the immense number of its drops, and on account of the silent concealment out of which it wondrously and suddenly comes to light. Spurgeon would say this, speaking of these who are like the dew, they are his people. And when his power is revealed, these hasten with cheerfulness to own his sway, appearing at the gospel call as it were spontaneously, just as the dew comes forth in the morning. As the Lord is exerting his power in the earth, his, his power and his authority, he is accomplishing all his will in the midst of his enemies, but at his call, all of his people are gathered. And all of his people are gathered freely and cheerfully in order to proclaim the power and the authority of their king. They appear as the dew. They appear innumerable. They appear, as it were, spontaneously ready to proclaim the greatness of the God who called them in the midst of his enemies. For it is, it is often that it is through the church, that it is through the people of God, that the authority of Christ is proclaimed, that it is known. As we see things happen in the world, we see things occurring we we look at that and we can absolutely say that this is the power of God that is bringing all this to pass because we know that God is in control over all things. And so his sovereignty, his power and his authority are known by his enemies through his people who cheerfully and are ready to proclaim it. And that is the great privilege that we have. That is why they come cheerfully they come cheerfully and they come ready. They come cheerfully because what can remove the joy that we have knowing that God is in control over it all. That even in the midst of people, as we, we would view it sometimes, in the midst of, of the darkness seeming to have won a battle or whatever, we can look and we can say, our God reigns. Christ is ruling and reigning, dear friends. Everything is going according to plan. Now some may look at that and see that as maybe as a fatalistic determinism or something like that. We're not talking like, you know, whatever happens, happens. We're not giving ourselves over to fatalism. Fatalism is nothing. It's an impersonal thing, a force in, in the ideas of those that hold to it. This is a personal God that we know. That is ruling and reigning and that tells us I have this in my hand, in my power and under my authority. So. We cheerfully proclaim the greatness of God. He's accomplishing everything in every age. What things can come from what good things can come from terrible situations Sometimes it may not be as evident to those that are in the midst of it. But just consider this. Like last Wednesday, for example, we were talking about family worship. We were talking about some of the things that we use. Paul had made a comment about the particular book that sometimes we read out of, out of uh, in our men's Bible study, a book on the martyrs. There's another one by J.C. Ryle, Light from Old Times, that I enjoy reading. you got Fox's Book of Martyrs. There are all these books that are there that tell of horrendous things that happened to 1st, 2nd, 3rd century Christians and on through the history of the church. And yet we read them. And we're reading of that. And you know what it does? It produces in us this this emotion of, of almost... Boldness, just wanting to come out. Like, how amazing that these folks did what they did by the grace of God working in them. That they stood against tyranny. They stood against against the Caesars of their day, even giving their life, even standing against the Queen or whoever it was that was persecuting the church. And they stood boldly and they proclaimed the name of the Lord. They didn't waver. You think of John Knox. I love John one of the Scottish reformers. Mary, Queen of Scots, I don't fear all the armadas of Europe, but I fear the prayers of John Knox. How? How? I mean, what do you say about that? And yet, many of these men and those that came before them who were giving us the scriptures as well, perished. They, 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 they gave their life. And yet we look back on that and we're encouraged and we're strengthened. And we see that source of joy, even in the midst of terrible circumstances like that. Look what God did as a result of this. So sometimes it may not be as evident to us in the midst of certain situations. But when later generations come, perhaps, or later on in our life, we can look back and we can see that God was doing some great things in our own lives, in our own individual lives as well as in the lives of others. So there are indeed things to 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 take joy in and to recognize the power of God even in the midst of difficult circumstances that He is ruling and reigning. Everything's going according to plan. Now this Messiah the King also has another title that is being given to him. This is the second oracle, the second declaration by David about this king. And this is, this is one of the reasons why this has to be about somebody else other than any earthly king, any earthly king of Israel. It isn't talking about David himself. And the reason being is that there is no Israelite king that held both his kingship and the priesthood. There wasn't one. And in fact. If we think back. To one Old Testament king. King Uzziah. When he took it upon himself. To act in the place of a priest. The Lord struck him with leprosy. And it was in the year that King Uzziah died. That Isaiah has his great vision of the Lord. High and lifted up. But. There was no king that held both of these, both of these offices of king and priest. So the one that David is referring to has to be somebody else, has to be someone else other than any Israelite king. He says, The Lord Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. This is a sovereign divine decree. To the Lord Adonai. He says, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, depending, we may or may not be familiar with Melchizedek. Now, when we were going through our study in the book of Hebrews, we get to Hebrews chapter 7. We read of this comparison between the Lord Jesus and Melchizedek, but he appears on the scene In Genesis chapter 14, he appears really out of nowhere. There is nothing that is said about this man other than giving us his name and him blessing Abraham. In Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 17, Then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him, at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him, blessed Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, And and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. Now, some would view Melchizedek perhaps as a pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, Many would also view him as a man. This is a man who just shows up, who is the king of Salem, and his name is Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and he is the king of Salem, and Salem means peace. He is the king of righteousness, he is the king of peace, and yet at the very same time, he is a priest of God Most High. He is the only one that we're reading of that has both offices. It wasn't given to him by, his, by any uh, ancestry as it was for the Levites. He wasn't born into it. He just appears out of nowhere. And he is a priest of God most high, this great title of the Lord in the Old Testament as well. And he is superior to Abram in the sense that Abram tithes him. And actually, the writer of Hebrews is going to use that as well. Speaking of the superiority of the priesthood of Christ against the Levitical priesthood. In Hebrews. Chapter seven. We read. Beginning of verse one. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God. "...who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like a son of God, he remains a priest perpetually." So, there's a comparison that is given there that Melchizedek is a type or a shadow of Christ. Again, his priesthood wasn't given to him as far as uh, inherited by birth or any of that. He appears on the scene. Nothing else is told about this man. That's why the writer of Hebrews would say without father, without mother, without ancestry, without genealogy, he just appears. And yet he is superior to Abraham. And so the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. And that David himself is declaring. Even in light of the Levitical priesthood. Which was going on in the day of course. Is that this one who is coming. Who is Adonai the Messiah. Has a more superior priesthood. Than that which existed in the days in which David pens this song. It's looking forward to the future. Looking toward another. Who is a priest Perpetually. He doesn't become priest by some other kind of an appointment. He becomes priest because Yahweh has made a sovereign divine decree. You are a priest forever. Other priests, they become a priest. They die. Another one takes their place. They die. Another one takes their place. They die. They're fallible men. But not this one. this one is a priest forever according to the order of melchizedek the superior priesthood because christ holds this office perpetually forever then that in itself is is the source of assurance for the people of god that the one who has atoned for sin will never perish he will never die But he continually lives to make intercession for us, according to the writer of Hebrews. This is the sovereign king who is also the priest who lives forever to make intercession for his people. This is a divine figure that none else can compare to because, again, no Israelite king ever held the offices of both king and priest. So it is pointing us to the reality of Christ being the greater priest, being the greater king. And he is the one who takes charge of his enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Now remember, Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And yet we read... That Adonai is at Yahweh's right hand, taking part in this conquering of his enemies. He will shatter the kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. He will have the victory, the ultimate victory. This is the one who... As he says, he will drink from the brook by the wayside. He doesn't stop anywhere to have any refreshment. He is the one who is on his mission. He drinks from the brook and he goes. That's the idea. One writer says he will stand stand still only for a short time to refresh himself and in order then to fight afresh, he will unceasingly pursue his work of victory without giving himself at any time for rest and sojourn. And therefore, it shall come to pass that he may lift his head on high as victor. That's the idea that's being conveyed to us using that kind of language. That the Lord Adonai and the Lord Yahweh together are making his enemies a footstool for his feet. He is the divine conqueror. He is the one who goes forth conquering the nations. That's where Yahweh says to Adonai in Psalm 2, Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance. The Apostle Paul, <clears throat> he also says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Beginning of verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. So the idea that Paul is saying there that he is doing the very thing that he is saying in Psalm 110, he is ruling and reigning. He is putting down all authority, all power, all rule, all his enemies being put under his feet. The last enemy is death. He conquers the nations. The world is in view here. He conquers it all. He does it swiftly. He does it with without hindrance everything that the sovereign king intends to do he does that's why when you're looking in the book of revelation and you're looking in revelation chapter 6 and you see the the appearance of the four horsemen and you see the first horse the white horse he has a bow and a crown he goes forth conquering and to conquer That's why when you're looking in the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature, symbolism the rule, literalism the exception, many theologians would look at the one who is on the white horse as being Christ himself, conquering all the earth, conquering the nations. He's the one on the white horse who appears again in chapter 19 of Revelation. He alone is the one who is overcome, as the book of Revelation makes clear even before that passage. He alone has conquered. He alone is overcome. And how did he do it? He rode swiftly throughout the earth, conquering all his enemies, putting them all under his feet, and bringing to himself all of his people. He rules over all. He has been made both both Lord and Christ, as Peter says. The one who is ruling and reigning right now. The one who is putting his enemies under his feet right now. That's why this psalm was such a source of joy to the people of God. Even in the first century. That's why they're quoting from it all, the, all through the New Testament. The very passage we open with being Philippians chapter 2. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. What's it alluding to? It's alluding to this psalm. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Until they are made a footstool for his feet. And his power and his authority. His sovereignty is made known among his enemies by his people. Who joyfully declare the gospel of the king. How can we do it joyfully. Though. Slander may come. And everything else that accompanies that. Because we recognize. The sovereign king. Rules and reigns. And that even in the midst of whatever it is. That I endure in this life. Is by the sovereign hand of the king. Shaping me. Molding me helping me to understand the importance of who He is in light of everything else in life. That He is still the source of my joy and my peace, and therefore I can have hope and I can be cheerful as, as the gospel is being proclaimed and the majesty of the King is being proclaimed. That's why the Apostle Paul says in, in, the, in the epistle to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He's in a dungeon chained to a guard he's awaiting his death what do you mean rejoice you can rejoice because you have confidence in the one who sovereignly rules that's what it comes down to having confidence in the God who rules and that brings ease that brings peace that brings comfort This is why. <clears throat> this is this is why it is, it is good to have a, a big God theology. <laughs> to just see how grand that He really is. He's not a small God. He's not a God who, who can't do anything until His people pray. He's not a God who, who can't do anything in the midst of unbelief. If that were true, he could have never accomplished anything from the beginning of time. Because everybody started out in unbelief. This is a God who laughs at his enemies. A God who scoffs at them. A God in in his appointed time when he rises up against them. That the psalmist says in Psalm 73 that sudden terrors fill their heart and he casts them down to destruction it may seem sometimes that darkness is overtaking but that is not true whatsoever and we know that's not true because God is seated he's not pacing back and forth what am I going to do He rules rules and he reigns in the midst of his enemies. And he is putting them down. As we speak, he is putting his enemies down. And so lift up your heads. Be, Be encouraged. Have peace in your hearts. Knowing that Christ... Is, is accomplishing all His good pleasure and He accomplishes all His good pleasure through you and through me, through the proclamation of the Gospel and the lives we live before the unbelieving. Being part of that, being part of declaring the glory of the immutable, unchangeable, glorious God, using mere creatures... To do that? That's, that's beyond words to consider that. But it's true though. God is using his church, using his people to proclaim his great name. To declare his sovereignty. His power. Let us indeed be encouraged by this psalm let us reflect upon it in the times in which we are downtrodden in the times in which we've allowed certain things to overcome us to go back to this and remember he's putting all his enemies under his feet and all his enemies are the enemies of his people that cause harm and that in itself is a great source of comfort and strength to us dear friends remember your God rules and reigns. Your God is accomplishing all his good pleasure. And your God is using you to make his name great in the earth. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for the reality of this song. That it is a reality that that is experienced even in the present time. You rule and you reign. No enemy of yours can hinder anything that you have intended to do. You sovereignly decree all things. We rest in that, we take great comfort in that. Oh, Father, help us to reflect upon these great truths. To remember them. Not to give ourselves over to fatalism. But to remember the sovereign God who, who is orchestrating all things. And to be confident in you. Help us to be confident. And may you accomplish all you desire in us. May we be willing and ready with cheerfulness in our hearts. To be used by you as instruments to declare your greatness be the praise, the glory, and the honor in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.